The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. What do writers do when they go to war? The answer is, of course, varied depending on the nature of the conflict, the historical circumstances, and the individual writer. Why did he or she go? Was this a choice? What did he or she find? What challenges were faced? How did the war affect them? And what does it tell us about the particular war, the particular writer, and maybe even war itself? In 1900, three British writers went off to war. This was the heyday of British imperialism. Wars were anything from brief skirmishes to dragged-out affairs. And we were not yet in the world of catastrophic global atrocities that the 20th century would soon see. The world was in a transition, with steamships and railroads and telegraphs making distinct changes from, say, the days of Napoleon. The war was the Second Boer War, the Anglo-Boer War, which has mostly been lost to the fog of time. The writers, or at least two of our three, are more famous than the war, I would say. We know their details better. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, Rudyard Kipling, author of The Jungle Book and Kim and If. Our third author, Mary Kingsley, was a household name in her day, a zealous reformer and famous lecturer. All three went to war to witness for themselves the imperial project and perhaps inadvertently to stumble into a horror show they had not expected to find. Our guest today, Sarah Lafanu, has written a book about their exploits. We will have that story today on The History of Literature. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. The Boer War. Who would have thought it would be such a good backdrop for our story of literature? But there it was, ripe for the taking, and our author today reached up and plucked it. Her book is called Something of Themselves, Kipling, Kingsley, Conan Doyle, and the Anglo-Boer War. We will have her here in a minute to tell us all about this turbulent period in British imperial history. But first, let's hear from some listeners. First up, an email from Eric, spelled with a K. Subject, measuring out life with coffee spoons? Question mark. Hi, Jack. I've been listening to your podcast for about a year now, and it has provided an oasis of solace in my life. For that, I am grateful. Hmm. You're welcome, Eric. About a week ago, Eric says, while I was listening... I forget which episode, as I listen out of order, you gave an amusing account of how you save time by being more efficient in daily tasks. One was that you taught yourself to put your pants on in one motion, both legs at once. At the time, I thought little more about it than the time it took you to say it, but as the days went on and I tried to listen to other episodes, this detail stuck in my craw. I'm trying to avoid going back, finding the episode, and scouring it for clues to see if you were sincere or joking. So I am writing to ask you now, is it true? Could it be? Are you really adjusting simple life tasks 
to achieve maximum time efficiency. I would have kept this meaningless concern to myself if it weren't for the fact that it's keeping me from being able to concentrate when listening to new episodes. Your distracted fan, Eric. Well, Eric, I certainly don't want you to be distracted. That's kind of funny, actually, to think that you're listening to our recent two-part episode on John Keats, let's say, and thinking, did this guy really teach himself how to put on his trousers both legs at a time? <laughs> really? <laughs> Can I detect some note of that in his voice? And to which I say, can't you tell how refreshed I sound, how much more time I have in my day? I've told you that I work a real job in addition to my podcasting, and you all know I'm raising two boys who are a handful. We're binge-watching binge Breaking Bad, by the way, my favorite show of all time, and it's as amazing as ever. I need time for that. How could I ever go back to the days of putting on pants one leg at a time? I would have to give something else up. In fact, I've doubled down on my efficiency gains. Here's another tip. Dentists all advise you to brush your teeth for two minutes every brushing, at least twice a day. That's four minutes at a minimum. Multiply that out. Ugh, it's a half an hour a week. It's a full day per year. It's three full months over the course of a lifetime. Three full months of your life brushing your teeth. You could write a novel in three months an even bigger black hole than putting on your pants one leg at a time. But here's the secret. When you brush for those two minutes, you have to make sure to get six essential regions, left side, right side, middle, on both the front and the backs of your teeth. Your teeth. Your teeth. Each of these areas gets 20 seconds twice a day. Right? Are you with me? Six areas, each getting 40 seconds of my precious time every day. So here's what I've done. I've outfitted my toothbrush with six heads. It wasn't hard, really. It looks kind of like a candelabra. I used some duct tape. My farmhand pass helped me here. My boss once said, you know, farmers will fix anything with barbed wire. You'd be amazed at how many problems they solved with barbed wire. And I said, what about duct tape? I've seen you use that a lot. And he said, right. That's what we got when one farmer looked at the other and said, what if this barbed wire was sticky? I thought about using barbed wire for my toothbrush candelabra, but no, that didn't seem like the right tool for the job. Duct tape was perfect. So now, with my six-headed brush, I no longer need to stand there looking at the mirror for three months of my life. I've cut that down by one-sixth, leaving me plenty of time for podcasting and for answering emails like the one to Eric. Thank you very much for writing in, Eric, and I hope my example serves as a beacon in your own life. Next up, an email from Armand in Portland, Oregon. The subject, Notes of Appreciation slash Nausgaard app. Jack, parentheses, dot, 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 and Mike. <laughs> A little second-class citizen there for Mike. In the parentheses, behind the dot, dot, dot. Long-time listener, first-time emailer. First, to speak to your entire podcast, I echo all the positive comments you have received. Wait, <laughs> positive is in parentheses there. I didn't notice that at first. I echo all the positive 
comments you have received previously. <laughs> Thank you for not echoing all the negative ones. The voluminous negative <laughs> negativity that I receive. The avalanche of bad news. Okay. I Let me start over. First, to speak to your entire podcast, I echo all the positive comments you have received previously. Your podcast brings me immense joy and comfort. Each episode has such a unique twist, surprise, and thoughts to ponder. You are an introvert's book club. <laughs> it's a nice phrase. The introvert's book club. I might have to use that in some marketing materials. Back to the email. Specifically, however, I would like to share my appreciation for Mike's more modern contributions to the pod, although we are still waiting for the end of his DFW sessions, dot, dot, dot. The Nausgaard episode, obviously under his suggestion, is a welcome change from the masters of the past. As someone who recently read his whole catalog recently, it is difficult to transition away from his rhythm and pacing. As Mike accurately put it, he makes other fiction difficult to read. I appreciate Mike's role, too, in parrying the blows of self-righteous critics. It called Nausgaard's work that of the millennial generation, narcissistic, or mere blogger material. Even you, who have not delved fully into his works, so eloquently put it, his writing may represent a sea change in literary fiction. A moving away from the fantasy and elaborated elements of writing into the mundane, the everyday, in many ways, could we say, truly disassociated from the ego self. Finally, for what it's worth, my favorite episodes are when you and Mike compile arbitrary rankings on arbitrary subjects, so please consider more soon. All the best, Armand, Portland, Oregon. P.S. Death to etc. Oh my... <laughs> Here's what I like about this email. Even you, even you, <laughs> I'm the host of this whole darn thing. How does Mike get all the credit? Even you, I'm the even you. You can hear the snarl in the voice, the disdain curling the lips. Even you. I'm just kidding. Sort of. Thank you for the email. Armand, and more arbitrary rankings on arbitrary subjects will be coming soon. They are in the works. Okay, the next email is a doozy. Let's take a quick break and catch our breath before we do this one. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. 
Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Last one for today. An email from Anders, or Anders, in Denmark. This one is, (laughs) you will hear for yourself, it might be Mike's favorite email of all the ones he's read. Subject, a few comments on the Nausgaard episode. Dear Jack, first off, greetings from Denmark, and thank you for the podcast. I'm aware I'm now grouping myself with a not-so-insignificant amount of absolutely insane people who write to podcasters, TV show hosts, actors, etc. People of fame, semi-fame, or just anybody who has an audience, has attention and recognition, which they consciously or subconsciously hope to be exposed to, or to get the attention of somebody they hold as a friend in a sunless spot in their mind, after spending hours upon hours, days upon days, debating with them, cultivating a relationship, having conversations on the phone while their friend is right there, sifting out of the car speakers, enjoying their company on good and horrific days during times with snow and others on days off. (laughs) We're two sentences in. (laughs) To finally be the one listened to instead of the one listening, and of course, have said host slash intimate friend validate the uniqueness, quality, and worth of their personality and recognize through the email what genius of great importance must have been sitting on the typing end. Stephen King's misery comes to mind, but I'm sure there's a whole subgenre revolving around the crazed fan. That's in italics. In any event, I hereby declare I'm not one such person in even the slightest bit. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Well, I'm glad to hear it, Anders. The email continues. But a combination of a chance at my office to neglect without consequence some of the tasks of which I'm hired to perform and an itch to right a few minor wrongs left me unable to resist writing to you after listening to the episode on Nausgaard on my way to work today. You seem a bit self-conscious about the pronunciation of his name and of pronunciation in general. You mentioned, besides Nausgaard's name, you hope you're pronouncing it right, both when pronouncing a number of Brazilian authors in a recent episode, or was it the very same one? I chop my episodes into several commutes. Chop? (laughs) Why does that verb fill me with some foreboding here? This is my number one fan, not a crazed person in even the slightest bit. Must be me overreacting. Firstly... This is back to the email. Firstly, everyone knows you're not Brazilian or Norwegian. So to expect a a correct, let alone a perfect pronunciation from you would be senseless. To take offense, idiotic. My French family-in-law don't seem to get this absolute truth. (laughs) This is beautiful. An absolute truth, idiotic to take offense at it. And the French don't get it at all. Oh, Anders, this is wonderful stuff. Secondly, the K is pronounced in Nausgaard. It is not silent, and it's not pronounced Nausgaard with a long A sound. The A has a different sound than ah, as you pronounce it, but it's a mistake much easier on the ears of a Scandinavian than not pronouncing the K. Imagine someone referring to you as ak. Yet again, any Scandinavian would have a sufficiently high level of English to know where you're coming from. No knowledge, knapsack, etc. So you would be promptly excused. The A sounds a bit like the English word or save the R, but not really. The D 
at the, <laughs> I'm getting lost here. The D at the end is not pronounced. This leaves us at Knausgor, which would be quite close, I imagine. Thirdly, the title of the book would probably be Mein Kampf in German, but I don't know where you get that German title name from, which is what you consistently use. That would primarily refer to that other guy with that other book, or specifically to the German translation of Knausgor. In American, I guess it should be My Struggle or My Battle or the likes. In Norwegian, the title is Min Kamp. This is the same as in Danish. This is, with English words, pronounced somewhat like somewhat like Min Kalm, with a less dragging A in Kalm and an added P sound at the end of it to clarify my use of brackets. So Min Kalm. I realize I may have set off a new series of questions and not clarified anything without pointing to new and perhaps just as foggy areas of strange and foreign articulations. And likely, there's a chance I added to your self-consciousness rather than palliate it. But it is my slim hope this takes the top off your pronunciation doubts and calms whatever nerves you may have in this regard. As everyone knows, most people are flattered or charmed when a foreigner tries to speak their language. I'm going to editorialize here and say probably not your French in-laws, but anyway, setting that aside, or occupy themselves with something local of theirs. Occasionally, those attempts lead to laughter, but mostly lighthearted and not mean. Thanks again, and have a good one. P.S. How do you find the time to do it? You mentioned in passing you have a real job and two children, reading, rereading all those books, prepping, deciding, and creating manuscripts for each episode, editing the audio bits, vacuuming groceries, spending time with family, visits to the dentist, you must. You also mentioned producing some creative writing of your own. I'm baffled. You must be an insomniac or a multi-billionaire. Or found and followed a life hack on YouTube like cold showers or getting up at 3.30 a.m. In any case, the effort, whatever it costs you, is appreciated around the world. Anders. What a beautiful email. Thank you for all the guidance and the warm words of praise. And as for your question, how does Jack do it? I point you to Exhibit A, which is me jumping into my pants with both legs to save myself some valuable time. And Exhibit B, which is my highly efficient candelabra toothbrush. You're welcome. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so with an email to me or by clicking five stars wherever you get your podcast. That's the easiest thing, really. That only takes a second. Or by subscribing, also pretty easy, or by telling your friends to check us out. You can also head on over to patreon.com slash literature. And guess what, people? We have special bonus content now for all our subscribers. An extra episode of Jack Wilson original material and our heartfelt gratitude goes out to all our Patreon supporters and all our emails, including the three we heard from today. Thank you very, very much. Let's take one more quick break, then come back with author Sarah Lafanu and our story of three different writers who went to war. Okay, joining me now is Sarah Lafanu, author of the new book, Something of Themselves, Kipling, Kingsley, Conan Doyle, and the Anglo-Boer War. The book tells the story of three British writers who journeyed to South Africa in what we now think of as Britain's last imperial war. What motivated them to leave England? What did they hope to accomplish in South Africa? And what do their experiences tell us about their culture, their personalities, and the historical forces at work? in the earliest years of the 20th century. Let's find out. Sarah Lafanu, welcome to the History of Literature podcast. 
Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you. So you've written several books. You served as the artistic director for the Bath Literature Festival, and you were an editor at the Women's Press. And here you are analyzing three very different writers at a distinct historical period. What drew you to this subject? Well, I guess that it was a mixture of things that drew me Mm -hmm. to the subject. Um, Firstly, I think it was the Boer War, Mm. which I knew very little about, but which I'd always been interested in, I think, dating from the years that I spent living in Mozambique just after Mozambique gained independence, Uh when South Africa was like this kind of great, big, intimidating presence on the border, Mm -hmm. uh, trying to, I mean, apartheid South Africa, that was then, trying to undermine, you know, what was going on in the newly independent Mozambique. And then I wrote a book about that and still didn't know an awful lot about the Boer War. Oddly, I mean, although I think, although I have come to think um, that the Boer War was very important in British history, it's really not much written about here in Britain, uh, not taught in schools. So I suppose it was kind of curiosity about, about that that was one motivating factor. The other was when I discovered that Mary Kingsley had been out there in South Africa in the early months of the war. And mm. she's somebody who I've been interested in ever since I read her travels in West Africa, which is this kind of marvellous uh, long book about her adventures there and about the people that she met and so on. Um, so I think probably it was that. Right. Those those two that, uh, that, that, that first attracted me. I mean, the coming together of those two. And that was before, really, I started thinking about uh, the other two, Kipling, my other two subjects, Kipling and Conan Doyle. Right. So before we get to the writers, let's set the stage historically. I, I agree with you, and, and certainly for those of us in America, and I'm, I'm sure other listeners as well around the world, uh, the Boer War is something we know by name and we don't know much else about it. Who was fighting and why? Hmm. Well, why is... A good question, actually, I think. Um, so the British were fighting the Boers of the two Boer republics, that is the Republic of the Transvaal and the Republic of the Orange Free State. Mm-hmm. Purportedly, they were fighting them over the rights of the people who were known by the Boers as the Wheatlanders or Outlanders, that is foreign people, many of them British, many of them American and from European countries as well, who had come to South Africa um, and uh, who'd come to South Africa who were drawn by the discovery of gold on mm. the Vitvatus Rand in the Transvaal Republic. Mm-hmm. Um, and they uh, wanted to have, or some of them wanted to have, uh, voting rights within the Transvaal as they were living there and working there and looking for gold. And uh, the Kruger, President Kruger of the Transvaal, didn't wish to immediately give them voting rights. That was purportedly the reason for going for war to war. In fact, it was for control of the gold mines on the Vatasrand, and it was also um, definitely it was it was to do with the idea that uh, imper- uh, British imperialism um, would uh, would spread. Mm. So the people behind the war, and this had been going on for some time, were Cecil Rhodes and his friend, Leander Starr Jameson, who had led the Jameson raid to 
uh, as it were, free the Wheatlanders from the yoke of Boer oppression four years previously, and that had been a complete and total disaster. Mm. They were keen on war. The High Commissioner for Britain, uh, Sir Alfred Milner, was also keen on war, and they had the ear of the colonial secretary in London, Joseph Chamberlain. So there was a a movement amongst powerful British men towards war. Mm. So I would say for kind of for economic reasons and yeah. for imperialist reasons as well. Right. And you write that war was declared in October 1899 and the British That's public right. was told it would be over by Christmas. But then you pick up the story in early 1900. And how were things going at that point? That's right. Well, they're not going very well, in fact. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was a bit of a, I mean, I think that people often think that the war is going to be over by Christmas, don't right. they? That's, that, <laughs> That's the promise. <laughs> that we're rather yeah. familiar with. Uh, and usually it's not over by Christmas, as was indeed the case in 1899. Uh, the British were taken aback. They were completely surprised um, by the ability of the Boers, who did not have an army, they weren't organized as an army. Basically, the Boers were farmers. Mm, so mm-hmm. it was men and their sons who were fighting. Uh, they were amazed by uh, their ability to fight, how effective they were. Yeah. I mean, I suppose one of the things was they were fighting on their own land and the British didn't have a clue. I mean, there were kind of other things as well. I mean, one was that the, uh, the, the, the British were surprised um, at how well-armed the Boers were. Uh, and that actually went back to the Jameson Raid, uh, mm. because after the Jameson Raid, um, a number of the raiders had been imprisoned, and they were made to pay enormous fines in order to be released, well, in order to have their death sentences commuted. That money was used to buy guns. So the Boers were very well armed with Mausers from Germany. Mm. Uh, and the British had, you know, they thought, my goodness, you know, who are these farmers that have guns and also their methods of fighting surprised them too hmm. uh, i suppose to i was going to say to kind of to make a generalization um a bit of a generalization really that i think that the british army was used to a much less skilled and mobile force hmm. facing they were used to having to meeting an enemy who would stand there and as it were be cut down by superior British firepower, mm. and that wasn't the case. So what had happened was that in December, there were three uh, three major engagements between the Imperial forces and the Boers, and the Boers came best out of all three of them. Mm. So Britain was left reeling. And on top of that, the Boers were besieging three British towns, Kimberley, Mafeking, and Ladysmith. Mm. Okay. And then uh, soon after this, three very different writers were drawn to visit the the uh, site of the war. Let's start with Mary Kingsley. Uh, who okay. was she? How cool was she? Yeah, who was she? Sorry, I thought you said how cool was she? Oh, how cool is she? Say, well, well, maybe that's you. a good question, too. <laughs> <laughs> I think that Mary Kingsley was very cool indeed. <laughs> I mean, in that, she was very independent minded mm-hmm. she had, um she had had a 
a rather uh, restricted upbringing. I mean, she was brought up as a you know Victorian daughter. She had an ailing mother who she was expected to stay at home and look after, an absent father who went travelling a lot. Um, and then when her parents died, she decided to go travelling. Perhaps I should say that she had spent a, um, a considerable amount of time helping her father arrange the notes from his travels and his kind of anthropological and ethnological notes. So she was so she was sort of inspired by him, I suppose, mm-hmm. to go travelling and to see the world for herself. And she went to West Africa and found a freedom there from the constraints of uh, Victorian society. And also she found things of huge interest amongst the people that she met. Mm. in Sierra Leone and further south. And she came back and wrote this marvellously, uh, I, I mean, I could almost say kind of racy. It is quite racy. It's it's very modern-sounding uh, book about her travels. And then from there, she moved on to championing uh, the rights of the West African peoples against what she saw as the muddling of the British colonial office. Right. Now, her name wasn't familiar to me, but you note in your book that she was a household name in her day. Uh, That's right. I mean, when she got back from her travels, she lectured on them Mm. and hugely popular uh, illustrated lectures. I mean, she was a great she she was a great raconteur and a great performer. She had a strong Cockney accent, which I think rather surprised people. Mm hmm. Her mother had been a Cockney, although her father was very middle class, a Kingsley. Uh, he was the younger brother of the very famous Charles Kingsley, the writer. Hmm. Um, and she she had a great gift for storytelling. So she would be ad- addressing audiences of a thousand or fifteen hundred. Um, so yes, yeah, so she she was a household name. Hmm. And what was she hoping to accomplish by going to the Boer War? Well. Of my three subjects, she was the one whose motives were most, should I say, obscure. Mm. Um, She wasn't, I mean, we'll talk about them in a moment. She wasn't driven by the same things that drove them. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it was partly that she wanted to get back to Africa, that with the Boer War going on, it was difficult for her to go back to West Africa. And so she... Uh, to a certain extent, I think, saw going to South Africa as a staging post for her, and that after South Africa, she would go back to West Africa. Although I have to say, also, she had very a very strong notion of duty. Hmm. Um, she was qualified as a nurse, well, as qualified as nurses were in those days. Um, and, yeah, uh, and also... I mean, she also thought that maybe she could do some of some work as a natural scientist. I'm sorry, I forgot to say this earlier, but actually right. in West Africa, she um, she discovered a number of uh, fishes and mm. um, other in- insects and so on that were previously unknown to people back in Britain. Was so she came, back, so she came back with specimens. So I think that was in her mind as well. Was she self-funded or were, was... Was she a, headed over there as a journalist, or who was paying for her voyage? Well, she had made money out of the publication of two books, mm-hmm. in West Africa and West African Studies. 
um, and she went with the blessing of um, the Natural History Museum for, huh. to do this natural science work. Yep. I think maybe they were. <laughs> I think maybe they all thought too that the war was going to be over by Christmas, and so right. that she could stay and then go on and you know and investigate fishes in various of the rivers there. Got it. Okay. Uh, but Let's, she went as a, oh, but she went, I'm sorry, but she went as a nurse. I see. Uh, let's get our other two writers on the table here. Um, so Rudyard Kipling is a familiar name, and he'd been to South Africa before. Now, I associate him with the position that, that British imperialism was a moral imperative, which hasn't aged well. But how was he viewed at the time? Were his, were his views controversial then, or was he considered part of the mainstream? No, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, he did see British imperialism as a kind of moral imperative. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had, on his previous visits, he had met Cecil Rhodes and had become sort of, I mean, Kipling was not by nature a hero worshipper. Mm. Far from it. I mean, his interests, I mean, for, you know, for for for, for, for those of your listeners those of your listeners will, who have read his um, his Indian stories, well, most of his stories, in fact, will know. You know that he um, he was interested in in the common man, in the the foot soldier, you know, rather than the you know the big wigs right. and the heroes. But with Cecil Rhodes, it was something different. He sort of fell under his spell, and I think that Cecil Rhodes' imperialist vision affected Kipling's, encouraged mm. it. Mm-hmm. So when he was mainstream at the time, well, I think the answer is pretty much yes. I mean, you know, he was uh, he was a great one for having his poems and opinions published in the Times. Yeah, uh, he was friends with Flora Shaw, who was the Times uh, colonial editor then. He was friends with Joseph Chamberlain. So yes, when war was declared. The first thing that he did was that. Well, this kind of joins both bits actually um, of his uh, interest in the common soldier, he uh, he composed a poem called The Absent-Minded Beggar, which he hoped would raise money uh, for the soldiers who were being sent out on a shilling a day and for their dependents, for their children, families, girlfriends who'd been left behind and who were scraping to get by. Right. And he was famous enough that he knew sort of the power of his pen in this kind of regard, right? Very much so. Mm-hmm. He'd been famous for a decade. Mm-hmm. He shot to fame quite soon after he arrived in London from India as quite a young man, 10 years before. Mm-hmm. Um, his poems were hugely popular. And this one that the absent-minded beggar, shall I just read out the first four lines? Sure. When you've shouted rule Britannia, when you've sung God save the Queen, when you've finished killing Kruger with your mouth... Will you kindly drop a shilling in my little tambourine for a gentleman in khaki ordered south? So it's got oh. that kind of rollicking rhythm to it. Yeah. Um, and it was put to music by Sullivan of Gilbert and Sullivan. Hmm. And then it was printed in the Daily Mail. And an artist called Richard Caton Woodville, who was a very popular artist of the time, was commissioned to illustrate it. And he did. He did a sketch of a wounded soldier, a Tommy, as they were called then, the British soldiers, with a bandage around his head, rifle slung across his shoulder. Hmm. And it was it was this most brilliant stroke of merchandising. Yeah. Um, so it was so the the image and the poem were reproduced on uh 
tablecloths, on handkerchiefs, on mugs, on ashtrays, on cups and saucers, and so on. And it it raised over £250,000. Wow. So when he got out to South Africa, of course, he was hugely famous. Yeah. And, you know, and the soldiers loved him. Yeah. So what motivated him to go? Was he thinking he would be effective in reporting back from there? I think he went to do his bit for the war effort mm, actually mm-hmm. i mean he 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 was he knew how popular he was yeah. and he thought that he could do something a kind of morale boosting yeah that was one aspect of it i mean there was another all three of my subjects i believe have some kind of private reason for going as well um and his was that earlier that year at the beginning of 1899 he'd lost his beloved six-year-old daughter, Josephine, Mm. Uh, New York, in fact. The family had gone to New York. Kipling had come down with pneumonia, very, very severe pneumonia. It became double pneumonia. He was teetering on between life and death. And his little girl, Josephine, also got it. She was a few days behind him. And while he was still unconscious, she actually died. And it was a, a terrible business for him and for his wife, Carrie. Hmm. Um, and he'd had a very bad year after that. And I think that going to South Africa was a way of escaping that, Mm -hmm. losing himself in the whole business of, you know, soldiers and war and meeting with Cecil Rhodes and kind of busying himself. Right. Right. Okay. So thirdly, we have Arthur Conan Doyle, who, of course, created Sherlock Holmes. I don't think anyone Indeed. needs an introduction to him. So he <laughs> yeah. was he was 40, and at, again, at the height of his fame and his powers, this is the period, to remind listeners, when Sherlock Holmes was actually dead. He had been thrown over the falls in 1893, and he was not resurrected until 1902. And we forget sometimes that Conan Doyle was trained in medicine, and I'm wondering, was he drawn by... By patriotism, or was he planning to go to help the wounded? Uh, well, first of all, perhaps I should say, um, when he killed off Sherlock Holmes, of course, that was hugely unpopular yeah. uh, with with his readers. Um, and in fact, there was a th- there were bits of Sherlock Holmes still going on after he'd killed him off. So he was earning a fair bit of money from um, an American. Uh, mm playwright and actor called Gillette. That's right. Who, yeah. who took who who um who asked Conan Doyle for permission to perform a stage play, uh, which was very successful. Mm-hmm. Um so everybody was happy about that. Conan Doyle thought that he wouldn't have to write any more Sherlock Holmes stories. Uh but meanwhile there was money coming in from it. So right, so then to kind of to get to go on to your other questions, I think what motivated him primarily was this sense he believed that the the Wheatlanders, the people I was talking about earlier, the foreigners who weren't being allowed the vote, were being very unfairly treated. Mm. Many of them were British, so they, he had a kind of patriotic sense. Conan Doyle throughout his life had this great belief in fairness. He was uh, he championed the underdog over mm-hmm. and over again. Um, you know, before this, and he would go on to do so afterwards. So he felt that 
he was honor bound it was to do with honor so it was much less a kind of much less of a um political belief i would say a wider political belief than kipling had it was a a personal sense of honor so he first of all tried to sign up himself in one of the um volunteer regiments Mm. uh but was turned down He, he i mean he was 40 which is quite old to be a fighting man and he was quite um large shall we say um and so the recruiting sergeant turned him away um but as you say he had he had trained as a as a doctor and he practiced as a, doc- as a doctor for many years before he gave up doctoring for full-time writing yeah um so he signed up with one of the field hospitals that was being that were being hastily put together were talking december now december 1899 when just after these three disastrous engagements had taken place with huge numbers of casualties uh, and the army medical corps which was a very newly formed thing was really struggling to cope so a number of private individuals were with money were uh, were setting up these field hospitals mm. and conan doyle knew one of them and said hey you know i'm a doctor how about me and they said yeah we'd love to have you so that's what he went as he went as a doctor now knowing what we know now in retrospect would you say that he was somewhat naive i mean i'm I'm a little surprised to hear that he was um going there to fight for justice when we kind of know the the other side of the the grab for gold and and some of the other motivations of the entire project or was that invisible to the public or uh no it wasn't invisible to the public mm-hmm. um in fact uh conan doyle's mother mary doyle uh, was very firmly on the side of the bows and she thought that britain was being uh bullying mm-hmm. and gre- and greedy many people knew that it was about the gold um hmm. naive well maybe yes maybe naive mm-hmm. maybe he was being a bit naive he he tended to, <laughs> i became very fond of conan doyle while i was <laughs> while i was writing about him <laughs> he tended to think the best of everybody yeah uh <laughs> huh. so you know it was it, it was it was that i think and he also i know he had a, a, a very unhappy personal life was this a period where he was maybe also fleeing something at home uh yes uh that is the case i mean it uh it, it was an opportunity for him to get away from a great sadness that he had at home which was that his wife louise six years previously had been diagnosed with consumption mm. um they thought that probably i mean she thought and he thought that probably you know she had only a year or two to live but she'd actually survived for six years but by now she was a chronic invalid. Mm. Um, that was a sadness. And a year or so previous to war breaking out, he had met and fallen in love with somebody else, a mm. much younger woman called Jean Leckie, mm. who he became, um, I think we could use the word besotted mm. by... Um, but again, there was all you know this strong feeling of honor he loved he still he loved his wife um the very idea i think of you know having 
an adulterous relationship at that point was anathema to his sense of honor. So he was caught. He was trapped. He was not very happy. So here was this war with masses of casualties. So he could go and do something useful. And perhaps I should say now, you know, that he was imagining that he was going to go and treat the wounded from the battlefields, which wasn't actually quite what happened. So the mistress didn't travel with him? She waved him off goodbye, Ah, but didn't travel with him. (laughs) And would you say that any of these three were against the war, or were they all generally either in favor of it or or just neutral on whether it was... Were any of them trying to stop the war? Right. No. Uh, Both Kipling and Conan Doyle were in favor of it for their slightly, slightly similar but a little bit different reasons. Mary Kingsley was not in favor of war. Mm. Yes, she no, no, she wasn't in favor of war. Although you know, she had come to believe that uh, that pe- you know that people must should stand up against foreign powers, against colonial powers. I mean, that wasn't how she started off, but that was what she came to believe. And mm. interestingly, she she became. Uh, oh, perhaps I should say, I mean, she ended up um, nursing Boer prisoners of war and she became, well, very sympathetic to them as individuals and sort of uh, and, and understanding um, of their cause and why they were fighting the British in a way that neither Conan Doyle nor Kipling were. Mm. So maybe you could just sort of set the scene for us a little bit, what it was like for these three writers to make this journey and what kind of conditions they themselves were exposed to were they were there hardships and dangers or were they were they far from the front or you know treated like celebrities or what was the what was the day-to-day life like for these three well when kipling arrived he was the first to arrive he arrived um uh, sorry, I'm just trying to think whether it was the end. Well, it was the end of January, beginning of February. He was the first to arrive. He was treated as, as a celebrity. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was given a military pass by Lord Roberts, who had taken over as commander in chief of the Imperial forces. Um, so he could go wherever he wanted. And he used that to go and visit all the understaffed hospitals that there were around in Cape Town. Cape Town was very far from the front. So. Um, so there was a lot of stuff going on there, a lot of movement, but fi- but no fighting nearby. Um, and then he used that to the the first place that he went to visit was um, was uh, the Battle of Paderberg, which took place quite soon after he arrived. And he went on a hospital train up there to gather the wounded, to help gather the wounded, and to bring them back to Cape Town. And he was recognised. Well, I wouldn't. He wasn't recognised wherever he went. I mean, of course, because in those days, <laughs> uh, people weren't so quick to recognise celebrities. Mm-hmm. Um, but by word of mouth, word flew up and down the line that Mr. Kipling was aboard the train, and uh, and, it, and it was, I think, a, a great morale booster. And he did things like he, um, you know, he would take dictation from the wounded soldiers who were being brought back to Cape Town. You know, some of them had had their arms amputated or, I mean, it was a, it was a terrible business. So they would dictate and he would write the letter to their mums or to their wives mm. back home and then sign it at the bottom. Um, and then after that, 
he then went to work as a journalist in Bloemfontein, which was the capital of the Orange Free State, which had just recently fallen to the British troops. So in terms of danger, okay, well, the danger for him, because Conan Doyle also, uh, the hospital that he was with, the Langmans Field Hospital, was posted to Blomfontein. The great danger for all of them, actually, was typhoid more than anything mm. else. Mm -hmm. I don't think they had had any idea beforehand of what it was going to be like. Uh, but typhoid was what was responsible for the deaths of over half of all the British soldiers in that war, mm. rather than battlefield deaths. And it was to do with ignorance on the part of the British Army Command, um, folly, bureaucracy. Um, you know, they, uh, well, kind of a, a, a whole kind of collection of kind of idiocies that mm. meant that sanitation wasn't seen as a priority, that water wasn't boiled, um, that, you know, so infection spread, infection spread like wildfire, mm. like the plague. I mean, it was like a plague. Yeah. So Conan Doyle, thinking that, you know, that there he'd be kind of, you know, setting broken bones or digging out bullets or whatever, found himself, um, uh, he, he called it um, that, that he found himself in the midst of death of the, the vilest, most horrible kind, and those were the typhoid deaths. Mm. Now, he himself... And he was the only one of the three of them, I believe, um, had 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 been inoculated against typhoid um, on the ship on the way out. It was right. the the inoculation was a very uh, recent discovery, and they hadn't yet worked out, you know, how big a dose to give. So it made people feel fantastically ill, and it wasn't mandatory. So lots of people said, "No, thanks, we're not going to have that." But he had, and he believed that it saved his life. And when he came back after the war, he campaigned vigorously that uh, the inoculation against typhoid should be mandatory for all serving soldiers. Hmm. Did they? And, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I don't know. I mean, shall, shall I go on to say about Mary Kingsley? Sure. I mean, Mary Kingsley caught typhoid oh. from from the Boer prisoners of war that she was nursing, and she never came back. She hmm. died there. Hmm. So it was. It was terrible. Yeah. I mean, it affected all three of them and her most of all. Did the experience make, um, did it change their views, especially for Kipling and Conan Doyle? Did it, it cause them to turn against the British leadership who was there and, and exposing the soldiers to the conditions and the exposure to typhoid? Kipling was extremely critical Mm. Um, and wrote about it, wrote about the army command in very critical terms, indeed. I mean, I mean, Kipling is such an interesting character, really. You know, he's so complex. And people think of him nowadays as being this, you know, kind of flag-waving, right. imper imperialist, jingoistic person. But he was always extremely critical of uh, of the army command, of people who didn't think about the lives and the well-being of the soldiers that they were that they were commanding he was very critical of interestingly of the british class system you know of the officer system where 
rich people could be officers where where you had to be rich in order to join a regiment in order to be an officer and where they knew nothing about warfare and endangered the lives of of their men so he was always very critical of that and he was certainly extremely critical of um you know of the way that typhoid was um you know was rampant uh but i have to say he was also he became increasingly bitter about the Boers Mm. um, and wrote lengthily about them as well, which was quite unlike Conan Doyle, who sort of saw it, I think, as in the end, you know, it was a fair fight um, and the British won, but the Boers were on the whole good fellows. So he had a kind of a very different take from Kipling. Hmm. Um, what, was Kipling's, was, uh, what was Kipling's problem? Did he think the Boers were uh, unnecessarily prolonging the war, or what was his problem with them? Um, again, quite complex. Uh, one of the things was that in the Cape Colony, there were which which was a British Crown Colony, um, there. Uh, a large number of uh, Dutch or Boer farmers living there, and they had representatives in Parliament. Uh, their party was the Africana Bond. Now, Kipling believed that they were being uh, treacherous; that they were, um, you know, that they were in cahoots with their brother Boers, as it were, in the two republics that Britain was at war with. That they were giving military secrets away. Um, He believed that Britain was, that the army command and that the government really um, was much too soft towards the Boers. Mm. And he believed that they were taken in by Boer expressions of neutrality. Things got much more bitter later on, actually, from 1901 onwards when the policy of British concentration camps was instituted. That is, um, Lord Roberts and Lord Kitchener under him uh, decided that the only way to deal with the Boers, to beat them, was a scorched earth policy, that they would have nowhere to get food, to get rest, um, to get support. So what they did was they arrested the uh, the civilians, the women and children, and put them into concentration camps. That was the—I think—that was the first time that the phrase "concentration camp" was used. It was a concentration of civilians. Mm. Conditions were absolutely terrible, um, and those conditions were uh, investigated by people like Emily Hobhouse from Britain who went out and looked at the conditions for the women and children in the camps and came back and made reports to Parliament. Kipling refused to believe it. Mm. And he carried on saying and writing that uh, along the lines of that, you know, how ridiculous that you should be fighting a war and the way that he put it, looking after um, the enemy's women and children. And Conan Doyle, uh, had that view as well, though perhaps less ex- in a less extreme way than Kipling did. But both of them thought that. Both of them thought that it sort of wasn't right that we should be, as it were, 
looking after the civilians. Of course, we weren't looking after the civilians. Um, the death toll amongst those civilians was higher mm. than that amongst the British soldiers. They died of disease too, I'm afraid. Typhoid mainly. Right. Uh, and so... Oh dear, no, sorry, this all sounds terribly grim, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> but it was. It was terribly, terribly grim. It well, was shocking. <laughs> yeah, and it doesn't sound like any of the three anticipated quite how grim it was going to be when they went. I'm sure they didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, they were all, in different ways, uh, romantics, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they were in search of uh, freedom, you know, freedom, as I've, I've said, of, um, you know, the tragedies in their lives, the griefs in their lives, but a kind of spiritual freedom as well, getting away from, uh, you know, the constraints of uh, polite society in England at the time. I think it was pretty constraining. And I think there was something, you know, people did think kind of romantically about war in those yeah, days. More if of, you, a, more if of you an adventure. Yeah, and if you thought it was a just cause as well, mm-hmm. as uh, as both Kipling and Conan Doyle did, an adventure on the side of right, I think. Yeah. Was how and, they saw it. And that they were maybe going to witness acts of heroism and courage and, um, you know, to be part of kind of a camaraderie of, of the soldiers. And instead, when they got there, they saw disease and, and devastation. All of that, yes. No, that that's that that is exactly what happened. Ah, okay. And did their paths cross with one another when they were there? Um, Rudyard Kipling and his wife Carrie um, knew Mary Kingsley before they went. They'd met in London um, some years before, uh, so they met up. So they met up with her. And in fact, when Mary Kingsley arrived. She arrived when when Mary Kingsley arrived. She uh, uh, Kipling was in Blomfontein then, so he had left his wife and two remaining children in Cape Town, and his wife Carrie was uh, lonely. I mean, she too was suffering this terrible grief from the death of her of her firstborn, her daughter Josephine. Right. So uh, Mary Kingsley went to visit her a couple of times before she went down to Simonstown from Cape Town. The um, the prisoner of war camp was in Simonstown, and that was where the hospital was, where she worked. And then she saw uh, Kipling when he came back from Blomfontein. Um, however, Kipling and Conan Doyle, uh, their paths didn't cross, though they very, very nearly crossed. Hmm. Kipling left Plumfontein uh, the day before Conan Doyle arrived uh, on the train uh, with the field with the field hospital. Hmm. And for Conan Doyle and Kipling, would you say that uh, we can see how the experience changed their writing in any sense? It's interesting, really, with Kipling because although he was so worked up about. Um, how badly the war was being conducted by the British authorities and how over-generous they were being to the Boers and all this kind of bitterness that he felt towards the Boers. Interestingly enough, when he went back to England, that time away seemed to have cleared something 
um, I suppose, kind of in his creativity rather than um, rather than kind of Kipling, the political animal. It was as if he had found his way back into um, his ability to to write creatively. So it was soon after he came back um, from the first time that he was out there at the beginning of the Boer War that he was able to finish his novel, Kim, which is his which is his novel, which is based on his Indian childhood, which is, I think, a, a marvellous novel about, about India in all its multifariousness. It's full of kind of love and joy and colour. Mm-hmm. And he then wrote some of, some of his, um, am I going to say some of his best stories? Well, his story there, I think, is a marvellous story. Um, he wrote that. He wrote the rest of the Just So stories. He wrote poetry. And after the South Africa experience, he then dug himself into living in England and dug himself into, I think, into English, into the English landscape and history and prehistory. And out of that came the stories collected in Puck of Pook's Hill and Rewards and Fairies. So in some sense, I think that it it reinvigorated or fed into the wellspring of his creativity. Hmm. Although at the same time, he remained very, very bitter about the war and he remained very bitter about it afterwards as well. When, um, when it ended in 1902, he was very bitter about what he saw as the concessions that were made to the Boers, to the losing side. As for Conan Doyle, I don't think it affected him. I don't think it affected him quite so much. It didn't. What I mean is I don't think it affected his writing hmm. quite so much. And he threw himself into a number of other causes soon after he go back soon after he got back, one of which was the cause of the Congo Reform Association, um, which was very important. I mean it was very important and it was important to him as well when it was discovered what was going on in the Belgian Congo, the Congo that was owned by King Leopold of Belgium and the atrocities that were going on there. So he threw himself into that and, well, he brought Sherlock Holmes back from the dead. resurrected him, right? (laughs) He did, yes. (laughs) And was that, do you connect those dots in any way or was that he needed money at the time or what was the, uh, is there any connection to his experience in the Boer War? He always did need money because he had a very large household by then. Yeah, um, you know, because he'd uh, he looked after all his sisters and his mum and his mother-in-law, and uh, you know, all all the extended family, and of course, you know, all the servants that served the extended family, and so on. He had this big house in Surrey, so there was definitely a financial aspect to it. Mm-hmm. I don't think that. Um, that his experiences of the Boer War had much to do with that. But perhaps I should say, I mean, what he'd been doing all along, because he was an, he, well, he was an indefatigable writer, like Kipling was. So he wrote a history of the Boer War while he was out there. So when he wasn't, uh, you know, in the moments that he had to snatch from looking after uh, his typhoid patients, he was writing up the history of the war and talking to the men and getting their experiences so that he could put that into his history book. And it was published before the end of the war as the Great Boer War. 
And then also, I mean, like Kipling, he there he also then became involved in uh, in what made, hmm, I was going to say counter propaganda, but he didn't really see it as counter propaganda. But because of the things that were being written about about the concentration camps in particular. So he published uh, The Great Boer War, his history of the war before the end of the war. And then, like Kipling afterwards, he he became very interested in what he saw as setting the record straight about the behaviour of the British Army um, in terms of prisoners of war and in terms of civilians being imprisoned as well. Mm. So uh, he wrote what could be maybe be called counter-propaganda. I mean, he wrote his account calling it uh, the South African War, its causes and contacts, because there was a, you know, there was a lot of stuff in the press in Britain, well, and across Europe, about about the behaviour of the British Army, and in particular about the concentration camps and the high death rates there. Mm. Well, taking, uh, taking aside Mary Kingsley, who obviously is a, a, in a bit of a different uh, position than the other two. Do you think Conan Doyle and Kipling would go again if they had the chance? It's so different now, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I don't think that anybody. Oh gosh, uh, I don't think that anybody sees is able to see war in that kind of romantic light that mm-hmm. it was seen then. Huh, would people go to war to escape what's happening to them at home? Even that, I sort of doubt a bit, actually. I mean, wars are conducted so differently now, aren't they? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, a, a lot of wars are conducted by um, men sitting at, sitting behind computers, aren't they? Um, killing people from very far off. I mean, which is not to say, of course, that, you know, that ordinary soldiers don't uh, risk their lives too. I, I, I sort of can't envisage... A similar situation mm-hmm. and perhaps it's because we no longer I was going to say you know we <laughs> the British no longer have that big imperial dream although I mean nowadays there are people who are trying to revive it I think things are very different yeah I don't know what they I don't know what they would do <laughs> if we could place them back in at the start of 1900 do you think mm-hmm. they would Live through the same experience? Did they view it as as important to their their own personal edification or anything? Or do you think they ended up uh, wishing they had never gone in the first place? No, I don't think they wish they'd never gone. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, you know, I think that both of them felt that it was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that anything. Uh, undermined that view really i think they both thought that they that they ought to be there doing their bit right okay well i have a surprise bonus question for you okay are you ready (laughs) oh i hope so (laughs) (laughs) and i'm gonna put a parenthesis around one of these uh, and i'll you'll see why when i get there okay after some unsettling dreams, you awake to find yourself on a ship to South Africa. You're told that the year is 1900 and you are on a special mission. You will get to meet a famous writer who is currently in South Africa. Your meeting will be for 15 minutes and you get to choose one writer, Arthur Conan Doyle, Rudyard Kipling, or Mary Kingsley. Aha, you say, someone up there must like me. 
They want me to ask questions that will help me with the second edition of my book. <laughs> to the contrary, says your handler, your job will be to tell them something. You know these three better than anyone. You know which one most needs to hear something that will help them. Which of the three do you choose, and what do you choose to tell him or her? And I'm going to to take out of the equation the uh, the chance to tell Mary Kingsley to be more careful about uh, not <laughs> contracting typhoid. <laughs> well, I think that I would... This isn't quite answering your question, but I think I would most like to meet Mary Kingsley. Hmm. Um, because I think... Uh, she was a woman who I admire. I think that she would have amused me. Uh, I would have been hugely amused by her. And I think that she had these very kind of prescient ideas about colonialism and why yeah. it didn't work and why it wouldn't work. Now, what would I tell her? Okay, I'm not going to tell her that she ought to take better care. I think I'm going to, I think I would like to tell her that she's left an important legacy. Yeah. Uh, the other thing about Mary Kingsley was that unlike the men, and probably because she wasn't a man, because she was a woman, she was very self-deprecatory. She didn't think that what she did was important. She spent a lot of time worrying that she wasn't getting her arguments over sufficiently clearly, that people didn't understand her, that she kind of wasn't making a difference and she wanted to make a difference. Hmm. Um, was the men I think had a had an arrogance that came from I'm going to generalise here, but that came from being a man in a patriarchal society. And although both neither of them came from the traditional ruling class, far from it, both of them had the um, had the the confidence that being a successful man had right. given them. And Mary Kingsley didn't have that. So I think that if I went to talk to either Kipling or Conan Doyle, I'm sure they would be polite. I mean, they were I'm sure, polite gentlemen. But um, but I don't think that they would have listened to me very much. Um, or as Mary Kingsley maybe would. But I think that, yes, what I would like to tell her about would be her legacy, the fact that, you know, that that there is this award given in her name for advances in tropical medicine um, that has been handed out over the years, including to a number of people who've won the Nobel Prize for medicine, for example, for work on things like sleeping sickness and, um, you know, and, and other malaria and other tropical diseases. And I think that her, that she did actually have an effect Although she thought that people weren't listening to her in this country, I think that she, that her views on on colonialism maybe did kind of filter through. That the idea of ruling countries from afar and sending people out to to try and make people grow up to your own level of quote civilization, you know, is is not a good thing. Hmm. Um, so I, you know, so I'd like to kind of tell her that. Yeah. That, yeah, that she left a good legacy. Yeah, that history will judge you kindly. Exactly. <laughs> and including but not limited to in the book uh, Something of Themselves by Sarah Lefanu. Okay, so Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today on the History of Literature. 
Well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. It really has. Thank you very much. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Sarah Lafanu for joining me for this episode. My goodness, what a story. And the book is rich with details we didn't even begin to cover. It's called Something of Themselves, Kipling, Kingsley, Conan Doyle, and the Anglo-Boer War. Do check it out. We've got some works on masculinity coming up. That's an interesting one. Some French poetry. Our list is long and getting longer, it seems. More gets added than we have time to cover. But we'll keep going. The journey shall continue. And if you need another fix... If four episodes a month isn't enough, you can head on over to patreon.com literature and sign up for any contribution level, which will let you unlock the special bonus content. A whole extra Jack Wilson episode there for the taking. I hope you enjoy it. We're thanking new patrons Lottie, Maxime, Sabrina, Pleasant, Brian, Drew, Kristen and David, those generous souls who are helping us out. We're going to try some different things with the bonus content, see what happens, see what works, see what the patrons like. I'm looking forward to it, and I'm looking forward to seeing you again, right here on the main feed, which is free and will remain so. That's four episodes a month, all for your listening pleasure. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.